This podcast was made possible by Thrive AP, a transition to practice solution for PAs, NPs, and the facilities that employ them. Thrive AP's educational curriculums accelerate skill application of advanced practice providers, improving outcomes, retention, and career satisfaction. Thank you to Thrive AP for partnering with our show. Welcome, everybody, to another episode of White Coats of the Roundtable. And today will be another off script as Mike and I have a lot to talk about uh, that has somewhat to do with healthcare and somewhat to do with our personal lives that, I don't know, Mike, I think I, I, I would be remiss to say that we did not have uh, a movie-esque weekend uh, this past weekend. So I want to talk a little bit about that. but I did, but... Uh... I'm excited to share your story of your non-movie-esque weekend, but we can, let's save that for the second half. We'll make that our, our we'll do a personal item and make it a little bit more extended. But today, uh, for our off script, um, there's a couple of things I wanted to talk about. So uh, what we're going to talk about today is specifically, if you could change one thing about the healthcare system in the United States, what would that be? Um you could take this any way you want to. I'm not going to prompt you any more than that. Uh, but I already have some ideas of what I want to talk about. So I'm really curious to to what this question prompts for you, Mike. Uh, but there's a lot that could be changed. And there's a lot of dissatisfaction and satisfaction in the healthcare system in the States here. So, Mike, before I talk about what I would change, I'd like to hear your initial thoughts on this. Because you, you didn't know what we were going to talk about. So I kind of sprung this on you. I know we like doing that. It's it's kind of fun to to just have a topic in and think about it, put some prep into it, but then have it be um, completely new for the other person and mm-hmm. just get their initial reaction. So, my initial two thoughts of things that I that just stick out to me in my healthcare career that I wish were different in our system is one is the removal of third party payment systems or third party management from a health insurance standpoint. Yeah. And I'm a big believer that every you know aspect of healthcare that you shouldn't have any zero dollar out of pocket, or there should always be some first dollar out of pocket expense, because I think there's so much waste and low value care in the healthcare system that comes from overutilization or utilization when it's not needed. Mm-hmm. You know, the the good example of that would be people going to the ER that don't actually need to go to the ER. Now, there's some social determinants of health issues because a lot of times people are going to the ER because they don't have access to a primary care, and that's a whole different that conversation. Is primary care, yep. Correct. But you know, people going to the ER because they have a sniffly nose and probably could have waited you know, four or five days or through the weekend to call their primary care, but didn't want to wait, needed that antibiotic right away. And incur you know five or six hundred dollars of expense at the ER when it could have been a thirty-five dollar primary care visit. And I think a big part of that is when you have zero dollar out-of-pocket expenses, you as a consumer are not tied at all to the expense of healthcare. And of course, if we're not tied to expense, if you go to an all-you-can-eat buffet, you're not going to get a small dainty little plate of food. You're going to try and get your money's worth and you're going to try and get as much as you can and get three portions of dessert. And I think that happens. I think also we see that on the flip side, we see that with providers too, where the third party payment, where the the payment decisions or the money is not managed by the, the consumer, meaning the patient and not necessarily managed by the healthcare professional that we 
overutilized care too. We're far more likely to say, hey, let's get imaging on it. Let's get an ultrasound. Let's get an MRI. And I think that adds to cost as well. So that's my one pet peeve that I wish could change. And that's maybe at the more macro level. At a more personal or individual level, I would love to see a movement away from fee-for-service, especially in psychiatry, because I primarily run a medication management clinic. I do interventional psychiatry, which is, you know, interventional. So we're doing lots of procedurally based treatments. But at the same time, mental health is probably a great example, if not more than any other field, of how the biological model of of mental health is certainly there. But there's so many other factors that go into it. You know, diet, exercise, psychosocial stressors, interpersonal conflict, all these other things. And our system is just not well set up to reimburse for those other things. We have counseling if we're going to stick with a mental health option. But even with counseling, we're not necessarily doing, you know, diet and exercise planning, those types of things. So we're slowly moving there, but I would love to see continued movement towards more value-based care. In a perfect world, what I would love is I would love for a health insurer to come to me and say, here's a flat fee. Here's, we'll give you four grand per patient to manage this individual for an entire year. And if they stay out of the hospital, then you get a 10% bonus. If they get hospitalized, then you get a a 10% deduction or, or whatever, but just have it be a flat fee where I manage a panel, I know exactly what my income is going to be. And then that would free me up where I don't have to say, hey, come into the office so that we can adjust your Prozac. Mm -hmm. But rather, maybe I just call them and I say, hey, how are you feeling? We just made this med change three weeks ago. Do you feel like it's doing anything? Yes, it is. Okay, let's just bump up the dose. And I don't have to worry about making sure that that interaction is falling under the guidelines of a billable event. I, need, I don't need to make sure that I'm, I'm doing everything within the context of making sure that it's something where I can get reimbursed for my work because I would just be getting a flat fee. There would be more certainty in payment. It would maybe free me up to text with my patients. Maybe I can use the patient portal and have texting where patients can text me if things are, if they have questions or things come up. I think it would allow us to make care much more efficient. We could harvest or leverage technology you know, the different things that we have available to us right now that are really cool in terms of apps and technology, but are not reimbursable and use those to help improve outcomes, but then also make care more efficient for the patient and for the provider. So those are my two. Yeah. I'm sure there's many more, but we'll start with those. Well, you said value-based care. uh, And I know the lingo between different medical uh, professionals, we talk a little bit different in this realm. So, uh, we, we would call outcomes-based care, uh, in pharmacy where, uh, we have stars ratings for those who are familiar, especially with CMS. Uh, there is a big movement for outcomes-based care where, uh, we will assign a star rating for providers or pharmacies who have better outcomes than other providers. So we kind of pay into the system where, insurance will take $1 extra for every uh, the care-based action. And if that patient uh, is successful uh, or has a high rate of success with maybe their medication, like they are failing consistently and uh, the records show this, then you will get that dollar back as a pharmacist uh, or a pharmacy rather. 
and you'll get an extra dollar back because you manage better than other pharmacists. Whereas if you paid into that system, that dollar, and you had poor outcomes with your patient, your patient is not taking the medication consistently, then you lose that dollar. Uh, so it is a carrot and stick type uh, program that they've they've enacted. However, you did mention that this third-party payer system is being a part of the issues as well, uh, where there's a lot of waste here. Like, why do we need these people? Now, medical billing is different than pharmacy billing. We bill in real time in pharmacy, and there is somewhat of a lag on the medical end. So you and I will have very different um, outlooks on how that how that's managed. But I really don't know how the medical billing side works. Uh, but at least for pharmacy, uh, we have PBMs, pharmacy benefit managers, where in the past it made sense to have them because everything was done through paperwork. Uh, especially when Blue Cross was originally the first uh, insurer to manage huge groups of uh, patients uh, under employers. And I believe it was in California when they started this. Uh, they couldn't manage it as the healthcare system was overrun and they needed somebody to, to jump in. And so they would manage all their paper claims and take care of all of the uh the death by a thousand paper cuts. So it made sense. Yes, you you do that. But now that we're billing in real time, and if you understand how PBMs work, they have made more money in the past 10 years uh, than most insurance companies have made themselves, these PBMs. But I will digress. I won't get too far into the PBM conversation, but you and I are in very similar directions when in answering this question personally mine is waste as well there needs to be a better way for the healthcare system to manage waste now specifically we're going to talk about the the ceos administrators uh in response to nursing strikes recently now there's a big nursing strike that uh occurred in rochester recently uh, RRH, Rochester Regional Health, uh, a healthcare system in upstate New York. Uh, they had been buying up a lot of properties, a lot of clinics, uh, as well as the U of R, University of Rochester, who has Strong Memorial Hospital. They kind of are competitive, really, in taking over this area. They want to provide the greatest amount of care within one single health system. So, the nurses have the worst uh, patient uh, to nurse ratio in this area at this RRH facility. They decided to go on strike and the hospital put out a statement saying how sad it is that these nurses are going to forego the health of their patients for uh, selfish gain, pretty much, that they tried to work with them and they wouldn't budge at all. And these nurses posted locally that the the president of this system in the past three years was making an average of six million dollars in bonuses and if if that isn't waste i don't know what is there's there's really no way around this conversation there should be no administrator that's making six million dollars in bonuses when people are struggling with their student loans, they're struggling with these these 
patient to nurse ratios. Uh, they're just looking for some better overtime, uh, some more support, and we're giving $6 billion in bonuses. Now, that is completely ridiculous to me. That is waste. And every single year, anybody in the healthcare system has to go through these CMS uh, these CMS learning protocols about how to avoid waste, fraud, abuse, what the penalties are, uh, what these all qualify for, what could be abused. Now, we do this every single year, and administration has to make sure that we get these done to stay uh, qualified under CMS. Yet they're getting these $6 million bonuses. That is waste. And that needs to be addressed. I wish we would stop paying these people so much to do. There's no way one person is worth $6 million in the healthcare system. What's an appropriate salary? What's an appropriate salary for for an individual running a hospital system? I would say I would say three to four hundred thousand dollars would be would be reasonable if you're running a multiple multiple institute um, institutional system. So if you have multiple hospitals, multiple clinics, uh, I'd, I would say three to four hundred would be reasonable. Hmm. Interesting. So I like that you brought this up because uh, you're letting your little your inner socialism show apparently, mm-hmm. and uh, we fall on very different sides of this. I, it's interesting though because I think we both agree that the the U.S. healthcare system is very broken, and in part I think it's because unlike other countries, our system is kind of a patchwork of many different systems. We have single payer for I think it's more than half of the entire U.S. between Medicaid, Medicare. The VA specifically more, now because yeah more than so more than half Medicaid. our more than half our system is single payer, okay. but then we have this patchwork of private and commercial plans, so everything ends up being a bit of a hodgepodge. So here's my pushback on you: is how many employees does Rochester Regional Health have? Uh, that's a good question. I'm not sure. Okay, because how much revenue? Look do, I'm looking it up right now. How much revenue do you think they generate? Ooh. Well, that, that with the hidden costs, that's that's a really good question. Let's just say gross revenues. Gross revenues, dude. I, yeah. <laughs> I, have no, I have no idea. So I can't find I can't find uh, employment real quick. But is it safe to say that it's hundreds or thousands of employees? Probably thousands, right? Oh yeah, thousands. Okay. Sure. So the revenue was in uh, 2020 was 1.1 billion. Mm-hmm. Me personally, looking at that, if you are overseeing a one billion dollar organization. I think a six million dollar compensation package is not completely unfair because the size and uh, responsibility that you're managing, mm-hmm. you know, you're making decisions that have implications of hundreds of millions of dollars. Mm-hmm. So, yes, I, I think uh, executive pay has gone up drastically, and I think there probably is way too much pay disparity between you know your average worker and your CEO. But at the same time, I think we have to be cautious because what's also happened in recent years is you see this immense consolidation, just as you talked about, where these organizations are getting bigger and bigger. So in part, not all of it, but in part, I do think that executive pay is rising because the size and scope of the responsibility and the decisions is also growing as all these mergers and acquisitions are occurring. I would push back again then. Yeah. My pushback is that I would agree with you if this was a an industry in which 
people are paying in an excess of what they need. So not wants, not, I mean, not needs, but wants rather. So if you're talking about an organization, let's just say Best Buy. Best Buy, its whole model is built off of capitalism. Um, you you buy things that you want, not necessarily what you need, you know, your TVs, electronics. Uh, so the more people spend in that area, the more excess there is, because this is all extra um, extra money that these people have, disposable income, we'll say. Whereas the medical system, the revenue that is created is off of the margins between what insurance pays for and what the the individual has to pay for. These aren't wants, these are actual needs. And all of the excess costs are coming from insurance paying out. So there's tax um, tax implications. There's also uh, the insurance implications. So this isn't due to excess of wealth. This is due to somebody paying out a CEO or a president of these organizations through insurance claims. Now that is why I'm saying it's waste. Um, this isn't a, an industry in which there's excess and we're just spending because we have this extra money. These are people primarily lower socioeconomic are paying into these systems more, which is actually our taxes because we're talking about single payer. So that's my biggest issue here is most of this is coming through either taxes or off the backs of individuals who really can't afford this. Yeah, I think it's a hard, it's a slippery slope if we start saying this level of pay is too much. And certainly there are some examples, um, you know, some some pharma examples, some others. I, I know the, the McDonald's CEO was under fire for a while because of his compensation package. Um, I just looked it up. So Rochester Regional Health has about 20,000 employees, over 20,000. There's 4,000 nurses. So yeah, I, I'm not here to say $6 million is an appropriate salary or isn't, but I, I do think that it is interesting because let's say you, you cut the pay to $300,000. Mm-hmm. Well, I can tell you what's going to happen then is a CEO of the appropriate level of experience or competence is not going to mm-hmm. you know come to manage 20,000 people in a $1 billion entity for 300000 if they can leave hospital management yep. and go to another industry, still be an executive and make $10 million. Yep. You know, so it, it's That's hard. a great argument. Yeah, it's hard because the market often dictates this. And even in a nonprofit space like a hospital, because it is a nonprofit. So I get what you're saying of, you know, where, you know, with nonprofits, I think there is a, a greater fiduciary responsibility to um, the consumers or even to the employees. A little bit of altruism. Yeah, I agree. Thing. But it's hard because you you need competent leadership. And I yeah. would argue that, you know, the nurses who are striking right now for better working conditions or better ratios would be in worse shape if the hospital slashed the executive compensation by 75% and then as a result had really bad leadership. And honestly, that's what I see in the VA. Um, you know, I, I'm a veteran and I thankfully have been healthy, so I haven't had a ton of interaction with the VA. But I think the VA is just so poorly run mm-hmm. and in part because I don't really have a whole lot of faith in government bureaucrats. Mm-hmm. I think there's there's very little um, consequence for bad decision making and everything moves very slowly because it's the government. But the, the hardest thing in government is if you are in charge of a hospital and you do a poor job, 
you're not going to get removed in almost any other role. You know, in my role, I'm running a department, so it's it's not a huge level of responsibility. But if I'm poorly running my department, I'm not going to be in a leadership role for very much longer. I'm going to be removed and someone presumably that's going to be competent will replace me. So my worry is that if you are slashing well below market, even if it is the altruistic thing to do, if it is maybe the the noble thing um, to to really have the focus be on, you know, everyone contributing or giving back. Okay. At the same time, you may end up deteriorating the quality of care. But how do you as an individual, like, because we can talk about individual levels at this point, as an administrator who is a president of this large, large organization, how do you accept a $6 million bonus when you clearly see your employees struggling and actually striking out against it, saying that our work conditions are so bad and you made this much money? Like, there is a, there's a little bit of a moral conundrum there as well. How do you sure. do that? Right. Yeah. I think it's hard, especially when we're talking about patient ratios or, or making sure that we're staffing safely. Um, it's a tough thing. I, I actually have far more sympathy for strikes or pushback from a, you know collectivism of workers when it's regarding working conditions as opposed to compensation. Mm-hmm. Um, because I think compensation discussions are hard. And in some of this with staffing ratios is too, because you know, if you say, okay, we're going to make sure that we don't have a, th- you know, anything beyond a three to one ratio, what you're signing on for is just this immense, you know, tie in where you're stuck with a lot more cost. So it's tough. I see both sides. And I think this is actually the the beauty of organized labor, right? Is I, I think this is the role is a single nurse would not be able to stand up to a large hospital system and say, this isn't working. I, I don't feel safe. My patient ratios aren't good. I'm, I'm feeling overworked. But collectively, the nursing union can stand up and push back and say, no, we need to make change. Yeah. So I think tension in the system is good. Yeah. Um, you know, having these types of things happen is, in my mind, when I see it, is this is exactly how it's supposed to play out. And if the nurses are striking and then they get higher compensation or they add costs to the healthcare system because the the concessions that are given to the nurses to get them back to work are expensive, then that's fine. Then the healthcare system has to accommodate that and make adjustments. Mm-hmm. So I think it's a good push and pull. And I think having that tension in the system is actually a net benefit long term. But yeah, capitalism itself does lend to some very great positives in that the market usually balances itself mm-hmm. in these areas. So right. I agree. I don't. Do we have time for my micro level then? Because that's yeah, my, that's no, my give me the micro level. I it's kind of funny. I never expected this to become a, a health economics discussion, but I love it. Uh, yeah, my micro level is has to do very some. It's very similar to what you were talking about with fee for service. Um, it's more scope of practice for pharmacists. Uh, we do not bill for most everything that we do. Uh, the only thing that we really get to bill for is administration fees when we give an inoculation, um, and a small fee that we get for for actually packaging and checking medication, really. So because of that, uh, the scope of pharmacy hasn't really expanded much because there's no carrot to it. We don't get paid anything to counsel patients. Every phone call that we get, it, it doesn't matter if you're a patient of ours or not. Uh, you could go to CVS and you're a Walgreens pharmacist your patient goes to CVS, but they call you at Walgreens and ask you questions about their medications, uh, ask you specific uh, questions about maybe a new medication the doctor wants to put them on, you will answer them. You 
you'll sit with them, you'll print out all the materials, you'll, but you don't get the, you don't get paid for that service. Now we went to school, we got our education and our doctorate uh, degrees in order to provide appropriate conversation, appropriate um, medical information to patients and providers. But we cannot build for any of that, really. There's very, very few instances where we can. Uh, instances of uh, medication therapy management, MTM. That's, re that's really it. So I'm not sure how you would structure these types of payments in counseling. Like, There's no way to really track that. But very similar to what you were saying, where you have an outcomes-based that would make more sense. If I've got 6,000 patients who are at my pharmacy and 80% of them have seen improvements, there should be there should be kickbacks to the healthcare system saying, wow, th well, this pharmacy is managing it very well. Um, let's provide them more finances and uh, expand their business and expand their scope and their reach. That would make a lot of sense for me. I'm not sure how that would actually play out. Um, but... I was just talking to an MSL the other day, um, sitting down, talking about the scope changing where pharmacists might be able to inject or administer LAIs, which you know is a huge drive. Uh, LAIs will will help patients in a multitude of areas, uh, better outcomes. Uh, we're going to see that Obviously, if you're not taking a tablet every day, uh, your ability to stay on calendar with your medication, it's not really a problem. And so in psychiatry, you probably see outcomes uh, rising when somebody is on an LAI. Now, pharmacists might be able to administer that. Now, there shouldn't be really that big of a conversation behind whether pharmacists can administer an LAI. A nurse can administer it. Uh, a pharmacist has much more training. Now there's REMS behind it. We could maybe have a REMS program that requires pharmacists to have a certain level of education behind injection, um, injection reactions, how to manage emergence, emergent situations. But that's a la carte for any new medication that we have to learn. So... All that to say is that pharmacists are underutilized and we are more capable than the healthcare system gives us credit for or compensates us for. Uh, that needs to change. And we see these small little changes, but we don't have a very large voice in the healthcare system because we're a pretty small in number part of the, part of the whole. Yeah, it is... Uh kind of just thinking about preventive care or outcomes-based care, I do wonder, and I, I'm sure there may be research out there, but I wonder what just having some level of compensation for education at a pharmacy level, what that would do to outcomes. Because I just imagine how many diabetics you see every single day, and you've talked about it in the past, about how as a pharmacist, when you're providing education or instruction, you actually have more time in the ability to just really have undivided attention with that individual, where in an office, a provider may not have that. Nine out of so, ten of my patients will say, I was not shown how to use yeah, this right. blood glucose device. So I, I, what does it do for outcomes if we had a, a reimbursable code for 15 minutes of education for the pharmacist? 
because it would change your staffing model. If, if pharmacists can then become revenue generators aside from just margin on product, then you probably can have more pharmacists staffing the pharmacy because you would have more opportunity to have patients come in and then engage in those educational discussions, which is a billable event. So it is interesting just uh, how sidelined, I guess, would be the right word, pharmacy is. And I never knew this until you and I started this project and we've been talking more about the professional role of pharmacy versus PA versus NP and all of them, that it, it really is quite fascinating how pharmacy has been so limited despite having a very high level of education and a very comprehensive knowledge of um, pharmacology, but I would even argue pathophysiology. So it, it is interesting. It's these little tweaks that you can make that probably do end up saving money in the long run if you're improving outcomes that not only can improve the healthcare professional's quality of life. My goodness, imagine if you all of a sudden have a new source of revenue through you know education, then that likely allows you to get higher compensation. It allows you to have more staff on site. So then there's there's more opportunity to spread the work amongst different hands. It completely changes the dynamics and saves the system at a macro level So uh, some money. So yeah, it's interesting. Pharmacy just recently had a big uh, advancement in allowing certain technicians who have been certified to immunize. Now, I'm not sure there's, it's definitely broken up among pharmacists and even technicians. Should we, we be allowing technicians to inject patients with a, uh, of the flu shot? I mean, yeah, you probably could. Phlebotomists don't get that much training and they take blood consistently. So yeah, we, we can certainly do this, but let's talk about the implications really quick about diabetic education. So the implications of a pharmacist sitting down and showing somebody how to use their blood glucose, blood glucose monitor effectively, the impact that can have is um, maybe instead of testing 30 minutes after they ate, they test two hours after they ate and get an actual, uh, an accurate reading. Or maybe they actually learn how to take a fasting level. Maybe we allow pharmacists to come in and take an A1C from a patient, uh, do some more point of care testing at pharmacist uh, sites instead of having them go into the office to get an A1C taken. Uh, the implications of correct blood glucose uh, testing also, if we're getting better levels and more accurate levels, then we can reduce pill burden. Uh, if we're not checking A1Cs and a doctor put somebody on metformin uh, just because their blood sugar was high on their last blood test, uh, maybe we actually take on the testing or maybe they weren't even needing to be on a medication. There's just so many implications just from teaching somebody at that level. So all that, all that to say, I think what needs to change is if we are the most accessible healthcare professional in the United States, then we should allow pharmacists to assist patients who can't make it to uh, a doctor's appointment. And if, cause if they're 15 minutes late, sorry, Charlie, like Mrs. Jones has been waiting here and we have to take care of you were late for your appointment. Yeah, I like it. So do you want to switch to personal items? Oh my God. Yeah. I, I, I think you have to go first. Okay. So Mike and I have been planning for, well, actually I should say Mike had been planning for quite a while. He was extremely, uh, 
I, I don't think this is even the right word, so I'm not going to embarrass myself and say it, but <laughs> you, you were uh, the man when it came oh, to thank you. scheduling. I mean, really, truly, I am not uh, organizationally minded as much as you are. And the Excel spreadsheets that came our way, uh, the explicit costs for each person, it was like, it was managed so well, uh, but we were going camping and I was excited. I'm a camper. I grew up camping. That's all we did. My family never went to the beach, nothing like that. So I was used to it. So I brought my four boys and my youngest is five. My oldest, uh, actually today just turned 10. Oh, and so we're going to have quite a day today. It's going to be fun, but we get there. I'm ready to go. I'm sweaty, hot and everything and building the tent by myself. And they're all just running around going to the water. And as Mike said, they can do whatever they want, which was actually kind of difficult for me. <laughs> but this is what happened. So not only did my kids all run into the water with their fully clothed, shoes, fully clothed with their shoes on and everything. And raincoats on. You know, like I, I'm not even sure what happened <laughs> in their brain that thought that was appropriate. And then my youngest, I mean, he's not going to hopefully hear any of this until he's much older, but my five-year-old, he gets too excited to not use the bathroom. And so he, with 11 other boys there, right, around the same age, they were just in glory. And, you know, he got all the attention from the older kids. Yeah, he peed through almost everything uh, because he just would not stop to use the bathroom. Uh, and then he also pooped his pants and I had to clean that up. And there's no, Mike, no sinks, no cleaning supplies. No, nope. this is roughing it. So... I was like, I was like a medieval uh, housewife out at the river, like scrubbing clothes against rocks and beating rocks on it to get up. That's not where it ends though. So we've got no more dry clothes. It's raining for two days. My kids have either soiled themselves or ran to the lake with all their clothes. So there's nothing left. Uh, finally, one night the kids are down. Mike and I are just hanging out. Um, near the fire with some other guys, some other dads. And I was like, you know what? I think I'm going to have, uh, uh, I don't really smoke cigars. So I was going to have some uh, pipe tobacco in a pipe. And so I was going up there to get my stuff. And then all of a sudden I hear out of the, my kid's tent. I was like, no, something else. So I walk up and what's going on? And my one kid had thrown up everywhere over three sleeping bags including mine and my other kids but everybody is still asleep with throw up all over them <laughs> we have no again no cleaning supplies so i had to take dawn dish soap water and paper towel and clean it up and the next day after the season even happening my other son comes up to me he's like hey dad i did something i don't know if it was okay like, what did you do he's like i pooped like, in your pants he's like no in the woods I was like, what? Why did you? There's a outhouse. He's like, yeah, the outhouse is scary. So I Which moved. It is. It was scary. Right behind it. <laughs> I was like, where am I? Yeah. So I had to go home early because, again, no clothes left. We're all freezing. The The night that the throw up happened, I was cuddling my five year old just to stay warm as he's pushing me off my, my mat. It, my, my kids, had no idea how stressed I was because yeah. they think 
that that was the best trip ever. That's awesome. They were crying, thinking that they'll never be able to go back again. So you did a great job with that. Oh, thank you. There are memories, and I'm excited that we're going to be talking about this in the future, but I'm still recovering, man. It can only go up from here. <laughs> so, John, I will say, because I was talking to the other guys on the trip, and they all felt very sorry for you because you had a rough go of it. So this is a, a big group. It's a father-son trip, so a lot of different people come. They bring their sons, and I think we had uh, 17 people this year. John was the only person there with four boys. So I had three of my kids. So I also had a good, strong showing. But John, just uh, you showing up with four and having to, you know, have them all run in four separate directions. Yeah. So it was it was probably bound to be stressful and you were maybe doomed for some degree of failure from the start. But the important thing, I think, is the kids had fun. Yeah. And uh, if one of those things were absent, I would have stayed the whole time. Everything would have been great. You know, it got down to 45 the last night. So you, you made the right call to leave because I think it would have been pretty miserable for you. your bag for sure. <laughs> <laughs> but I'll, I'll riff off of John, as I always do, because I think we just came off the camping trip and it, and it was a lot of fun. This is a, an annual tradition we do. It was its 25th year. So for 25 years, this trip has been going on with, uh, you know, various people coming in and out. But usually it's anywhere from about 15 to 20 people that go. And it's just so much fun because there's no agenda. We go and we just sit. And this year we had a really great spot. I might actually post on LinkedIn uh, a picture of, of the sunset that we had, but it was right on the water. And the kids all just play and kind of interact and, and entertain themselves. And the adults usually just sit and read books, relax in hammocks, take naps. So it's a really great way to unplug and just completely get away from the hustle and bustle. And I think especially, John, for for people like you and I, where we like to burn the candle at both ends, I think so often in healthcare, life is busy and chaotic, and, and we're no stranger to working many hours. Having those intentional times built in to completely unplug, have you know no cell service, just read a book, not be connected to anything, not have the office calling, it really is an important thing. So I, I'm glad you came. I'm hoping that uh, in future years, you'll have a better experience. We'll do it again. <laughs> your kids will be older. I mean, it, I, I've always found that when you bring the five-year-old, because our age cutoff for this trip is that the boys can't go until they're five. So it's this like big coming of age thing when they turn five and they get to go on this camping trip after watching their older brothers go. But when you have a five-year-old go, it's always a struggle because five is a tough age to have them in the woods, you know, pooping in outhouses that have spiders in them. But even just the difference of a five-year-old to a six-year-old, I guarantee you, right? next year when you go, yeah. your your six-year-old won't poop his pants, mm-hmm. your six-year-old will sleep through the night, mm-hmm. and it will be a completely different experience. So yeah. it was still a lot of fun. I, I, I think uh, I'm really glad that the kids had yeah. fun. It was uh, a good weekend, even with a little bit of intrigue. Yeah, and everybody who's ever been camping knows like it's going to rain. You're going to be miserable at some point, but it's all like it is the best way to disconnect. And I I do have to say the reason why I ended up getting up so early every day is obviously because I was freezing and didn't have a bag anymore. But uh, I I mean, I got up at 536, went out there, everybody else is sleeping, build a fire myself. I I make my own coffee. I'm hearing the loons and you're seeing the fog across the water and absolutely gorgeous like that. It made it all worth it because I would have not gotten up at six o'clock ever camping if it wasn't for that. So mm-hmm. lots of benefits. We'll do it again next year. Let's do it. Awesome. Well, thank you, everyone. This was a great discussion, John. Mm-hmm. I, I do love these off scripts. I know we've been leaning a little bit heavier into the off scripts over the summer, and that's intentional. 
Um, it, it allows us to have good discussion, but not um, have to maybe spend hours doing show notes and then hours editing. Mm-hmm. So it's it's our opportunity to still provide a weekly discussion for everybody, but do so in a way that's maybe a little bit more scaled back so that we can maintain a good work-life balance through the summer. But thank you for everyone for joining us. This is White Coats the Round Table. If you like what you hear, consider subscribing. Follow us on our social media platforms. If you really like what you hear, leave us a review. If you don't like what you hear, definitely don't review us. Read it. Until next week, this is Mike and John. Have a great week, everybody.